Negotiation is an important skill for software engineers. The salary that you negotiate at the beginning of your job could be a difference of tens of thousands of dollars over the course of an engineer's career. But intimidating recruiters and exploding offers can scare many engineers from negotiating at all. Today, Hasib Qureshi returns to the show to discuss his epic story of salary negotiation. On a previous episode, Hasib discussed leaving his career as a poker player to join a coding boot camp and start down the path of a software engineer. In this episode, Hasib describes his approach to the job search and the salary negotiation process, which eventually landed him at Airbnb with a $250,000 annual salary. That's after about a year of learning to code. I really enjoyed talking to Hasib because his opinions are both unconventional and well-reasoned, which is the perfect combination of a person to sit down to a podcast conversation with. Uh, Hasib and I go way back, and uh, this is just a, a treat for me, so we ended up talking for quite a long time. Some quick announcements before we get started. The Software Engineering Daily community has started working on a project called Software Daily, we are building an open-source news and information site about software. And if you're a web developer working with web development tools like React.js or Flux Architecture or Node.js or really anything that's web-related, check out the Software Daily repo, which you could find by going to softwaredaily.com. And if you want to contribute to Software Engineering Daily in a different way, you can also go to softwareengineeringdaily.com where you can find this podcast as well as links to the Slack channel, my Twitter account, my email. You can find the Software Engineering Daily newsletter. You can also find out how to host a show or to get involved in contributing to the outlines that I prepare for these shows. Uh, in any case, I would love it if you checked out softwaredaily.com or softwareengineeringdaily.com. Hasib Qureshi is a software engineer at Airbnb and the author of several blog posts documenting his transition from poker player to coding bootcamp graduate to full-time engineer. Hasib, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. Good to be good to be back. Yes, it's great to talk to you once again. Um, so on the previous episode, you talked about your transition from poker to software engineering via boot camp. And at that boot camp, you wound up being a director of product. And then eventually you decide to leave and go on the hunt for a job as an actual software engineer. Mm-hmm. So I want the topic of our conversation to focus on that job search and the negotiation for your salary at the job that you ended up getting, because this is a topic that many people are very curious about. So why don't you give us a snapshot of where you were at the beginning of your job search? Yeah, absolutely. So so just a quick recap for anybody who either didn't view the episode or or doesn't doesn't know anything about me. Um, so I came out to Silicon Valley in April of last year, 2015, um, and I really had no background, whatever, in, in coding. Um, I knew like a little bit of HTML and CSS that I'd kind of cobbled together over the years, but other than that, I was essentially a blank slate. Uh, so I I decided that I wanted to come into tech for a number of reasons. I applied to App Academy, which was a, a top coding boot camp in San Francisco. I got in, uh, finished the boot camp. I basically worked my ass off, graduated from the top of my, my class, and I was offered a job as uh, uh, an instructor there. So I joined the school and started you know, helping them to teach. Uh, three months later, I was promoted to director of product, 
And so as director of product of the boot camp, essentially what I was doing was kind of working more on the on the business side and the product side, trying to decide, you know, how we should better form the product, you know, how can we improve the bootcamp experience, uh, what other kinds of services can we offer besides just a straightforward uh, coding bootcamp. And um, so I did that for about nine months. And, uh, well, I'm sorry, it would be uh, not nine months, exactly, I think about seven months. And after a certain point, I kind of decided that I wasn't really enjoying what I was doing that much anymore. Uh, I wasn't really being that challenged and more of my role had kind of moved more towards business and away from, you know, uh, computer science and, and software engineering, which is really kind of what got me in the game to begin with. So I kind of thought to myself, all right, I'm, I'm not that happy doing this. Uh, this feels very far away from the thing that I originally came to Silicon Valley to do. Um, and I spent most of my time thinking about what was going on at other companies, which seemed like a sign that maybe I shouldn't I shouldn't be here. I should be somewhere else. Um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to do a job search. And I, you know, originally I wasn't really sure what I wanted my career trajectory to be within App Academy. I just knew that this, you know, was immediately a good opportunity and that's something I should pursue. Um, and I wasn't actually even totally sure that I wanted to go into software engineering uh, as sort of the direct route. But I think spending so much time away from it, I was like, man, I, I'm really kind of itching to code and to build things and to work on hard engineering problems. So the idea was, you know, so I was still working as an instructor as well. While I was director of product, I was also teaching in the course, giving lectures, things like that. Um, and so I decided that I was going to, uh, you know, kind of follow the advice that I was giving to a lot of my students in effecting a job search. So first thing I did was I, you know, wrapped up all my projects, finished up, uh, you know, having having like nice solid apps on my portfolio that I could show to potential employers. Um, I worked on, you know, uh, prepping myself for algorithms and data structures and stuff like that, which I was already pretty comfortable with, stuff that I'd studied, uh, you know, to, to some degree over the last year since coming into the field. Um, and basically, I started applying to companies. So just sending out applications, you know, cover letter, resume. Um, and I think, you know, at the time I was working full time, I was still a director of product and I hadn't told anyone at that time that I was leaving uh, because I wanted to have some leads first and wanted to make sure that I w was getting some traction, kind of had some idea of where I would, where I would be uh, in my job search before I told App Academy that for sure I was leaving. Uh, and of course, I had a conversation with them about how I was feeling and that I wasn't totally satisfied. So what ended up happening was every single company that I applied to rejected me. They rejected me without interview, without even pretty much without any kind of technical conversation whatsoever. Uh, every single time my resume just got immediately trashed. Now, my background before coming to App Academy, uh, in case people uh, aren't aware, so I used to be a professional poker player uh, for about five years. Uh, I got my degree in English with a minor in philosophy. Uh, so my background, and I worked after being a poker player as a poker coach and like I, I wrote a book about poker. So my background is just totally, it, it seems very, very profoundly non-technical and totally orthogonal from anything. Although, although in some sense. contexts, the background would be a major positive. And probably if you talk to a lot of top executives and you show them your resume, they would be like, wow, this is really interesting. We should definitely talk to this guy. But uh, perversely at the lower level, like entry level, uh, software engineering positions, it probably uh, worked against you. 
Oh yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I think uh, being <laughs> being strange in a way that people don't know how to classify is almost always a bad thing when it comes to trying to pass the filtering system, you know, which, which largely, you know, resume screens and, and inboxes are, are designed to be filtering systems. Uh, and so in some sense, it's unsurprising that I wasn't getting through any of these places. Um, but it was, it was at least surprising to me at the time because, you know, so I knew that App Academy students or bootcamp students in general, especially in the Bay Area right now, uh, you know, it isn't the easiest thing in the world to get your resume looked at and to get on the phone with somebody and actually have your skills evaluated. Um, and so I knew that, but I also knew that, you know, for former instructors at App Academy, um, so people who had been on the teaching staff, they tend to have not a bad time. Uh, so actually I remember I knew one guy who, uh, was part of, uh, one of, one of our instructors, he, um, he didn't even have to apply to any, any companies. Basically he got contacted by recruiters from Uber and Google. And those are the only two companies he talked to and he ended up getting offers from both of them. And so I kind of thought, you know, knowing that, you know, that's, that, that was, you know, similar experiences that I've heard from other people who are on the teaching staff, uh, that, oh, it, it shouldn't be a problem. Like, I'm mm. going to be totally fine. Um, and it was the exact opposite. I applied to 20-plus companies and didn't talk to a single person. And so without your, with, without your, or with your six or seven months of experience, throughout that experience, as, uh, you know, when you were at App Academy, were you getting any emails from recruiters? Um, no, not really. I mean, I did, uh, I mean, I got, um, because I was on AngelList, I would occasionally get pings from, Mm. from, from folks. Uh, but I think actually not established companies. Yeah. Well, also like, I think since I became director of product, since my role changed Mm -hmm. from being, uh, uh, being on the teaching staff to being in sort of the product side, business side, uh, that completely ended. Um, now, you know, while I was director of product, I was actually doing software engineering, uh, because you know, App Academy has a number of internal applications that we use for like classroom management. We we manage like our application funnel and our website, um, and I was you know their 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 Rails apps, and I was doing a lot of the development on them, and also doing like uh, a lot of software architecture stuff when we were trying to build new systems. Um, but none of it seemed to matter. Uh, it was it was I, I, you know my name and the stuff that I was doing on my resume was just seemingly so far away from what people were hiring for that. I was just not getting through to any of these companies. So, so you blasted out resumes to mm-hmm. twenty or twenty-five jobs, and you got no callbacks from any real people. You just got turned down by the automated systems. And what you did next was you talked to one of your former students, and the former student got you inside twenty-three and Me for an interview, and. Tell me what happened when you finally got inside 23andMe for a job interview. Yeah. So uh, 23andMe was the first company I got an onsite from. And the guy who referred me was actually – he was actually a peer of mine during when I was in boot camp. And he was working at 23andMe. Um, and so he referred me. You know, He thought I was I was really solid coder. And uh, when I went into the onsite, I thought I killed it. I mean, I did like all the problems. I knew exactly what to do. I finished with you know tons of time. Uh, like, and, and they were all, I think, fairly CS heavy questions. Um, and I, th- I thought I blew it out of the park. And so I remember when I was you know going home, uh, waiting for the train in uh, uh, Mountain View. I was just like, man, that was so awesome. I just totally nailed that. I could tell everybody I talked to was impressed. Um, you know. It feels great to interview. That was fantastic, you know. And um, I was basically waiting for them to give me a job offer because I was like, "There's no." I mean, they they brought me here. 
I completely blew it out of the park. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm just waiting for them to call me back. And it turned out about a week later, I got an email saying that the, uh, quote unquote, the position had been filled and uh, they didn't want to move forward with me. What do you think happened in retrospect? You know, that's a, it's a good question. I, I, someone asked me this before. I have no idea. And I think probably the reality is a lot more mundane, uh, where probably, you know, um, I, I think a few things are possible. One is that somebody just didn't like me. Uh, or that somebody just like kind of gave a blocking no and who knows why for just some arbitrary reason. Um, or it could have it could have well been that perhaps they literally were like, we need to hire two people and two people just got hired at that point. I think the former seems more plausible. It, it's – yeah, it's, it's certainly possible. Uh, because any, I, any of these things are possible. Because like – I mean speaking personally, I, I – you know, I'm a big fan of you. Obviously, we're good friends. Mm-hmm. But – you know, I know that sometimes you can come off as intimidating or, you know, other <laughs> off other types of off-putting behavior. I mean, it can be off-putting to some people. I mean, like for, for our, you know, it was our experience. It was like discussing poker hands or whatever. And you know, this behavior, this, this play is totally stupid. Why would you ever do that? And in that context, like it really helps to hear harsh criticism to, you know, it would, it's great to hear your negative feedback or whatever, but the behavior that, you know, you know, we grew up in playing poker and the behavior of like harsh criticism and just like extreme candor turns out to not be welcome in all corporate contexts. And I think it's I mean, hard to iron yeah. that out. I mean, that, that's certainly true. That said, I don't think that was really present in my interview. Okay. I mean, it was a pretty tame interview. It was, you know. You weren't like, obviously, you reversed the linked list this no, way. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I know, <laughs> I, I think I know enough about how to communicate diplomatically, especially in the context of a job interview, mm. that I'm not going to like lambast my, my interviewer. That said, I did have one interview and it kind of pops to mind. One, one of the interviews I had, um, actually, the question that, uh, so the question that I was given – actually, I probably shouldn't repeat the question because it was <laughs> – yeah, OK. But basically, the, the question kind of boiled down to um, uh, basically an algorithm to find the um, the n uh, – oh, 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 let me see if I can find a, a good way to put this. Basically, the n smallest elements in a, in a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's essentially the, the way you can do it. Heap um, sort. I'm sorry? Heap sort. Uh, well, so ideally do it without, without sorting. Um, and the way that I solved the problem was using an algorithm that the, uh, the person who was giving me this problem was not expecting. And, uh, I actually, I, I ended up using, uh, quick select to, which is, which is an algorithm that's kind of like based on of quick sort and it, it, it happens in, in linear time. And, um, I'm trying to. I, I, there, I don't remember the exact problem, but I do remember that that quick select was the fastest way to solve this. Um, and he wanted me. The, the solution he wanted me to use was with a heap. And so I was like, oh well, I can I can actually do this faster with quick select. <laughs> and he's like, I I don't know what quick select is. And I was like, oh well, it's an algorithm that can do X Y Z in linear time. Uh, and he was like, um, well, that I'm looking it up on Wikipedia. It looks really hard. I don't know if you know. I don't know if that's a great idea to to write that algorithm. And I was like, no, 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 I can do it. Like, just if if you want me to do it, I can I can do it, and it'll solve it in linear time. Um, and he was like, um, if you really want to, but I really think you should try it another way. And so I finished it with quick select, and it was totally fine. And then he was like, oh, okay, well, can you think of a way to do this with a heap? And I was like, uh, 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 yeah, I could, but it would be slower. And he's like, just do it with a heap. 
And I was like, I was like, why? Why would you want me to do this in the heat? This is literally slower than, there than we go. solving it the way I've already done. All right. Um, well, I think it. you have was, answered our question. I was pretty diplomatic about it. I was like, I, I don't think I was, you know, lambasting him in any way. I think I was. But just that's the thing, Hasib. There's no way to diplomatically tell somebody <laughs> that I'm sorry. You know, you're trying to tell me that two plus two equals five, and then I should you know add up two plus two to equal five because it's easier than doing one plus one plus one plus one plus one equals four you know even because even though that's more factual uh, yeah and anyway i i I would guess that that's what happened but um you know who knows Uh, these things are hard to tell okay so let's move on to the uh the, the more interesting parts of this uh process so so you got this rejection um you you know you you were still getting rejected from these you know all these other things you were just emailing in. Um, and these rejections continued until you started getting some offers. When did you start to get offers? So I started getting offers. Um, so shortly after I got rejected from 23andMe, uh, I ended up getting, you know, I applied to all the job platforms. I applied to uh, uh, Hired. I applied to um, basically all the Hired knockoffs. Uh, I applied to, um, uh, you know, I was I was on AngelList, you know, hitting up companies. I was sending out applications. I was doing everything, and nothing was landing. Um, so the the two avenues that turned out to be fruitful were one, uh, trying to get referrals by talking to people I knew, basically plug, you know, uh, plumbing my network, especially for people who knew of me, had worked with me. Um, so largely they were my students and people who were colleagues when I was at App Academy. Um, and the other thing I did was I got on TripleByte, which I, I believe you guys have uh, actually uh, interviewed before. Um, so they're, uh, they're a YC company that basically they do like blind screening. So, you know, you apply to TripleByte, you do their anonymous online test. They don't know what your background is. They don't know your resume. They don't know how many years experience you have. It's basically purely based on can you code and solve problems. Um, so I got in their platform, interview with them, and they decided they wanted to work with me. So through TripleByte, I got introduced to three companies, uh, Gusto, Flexport, and um, Heap, I think. And... Um, I ended up getting most of my very first offer that I got was actually through, I, I can't remember which was the first one now, but uh, it was, I, I basically got three offers roughly simultaneously. I got Gusto through TripleByte. I got Yelp through a referral that I was, uh, actually a referral who was not an engineer. So a, a salesperson who had referred me at Yelp. And uh, and then I got actually TripleByte itself asked me if, if I wanted to work for them and they ended up making me an offer. So I sort of got these three offers right out of the gate. Mm. Um, and these early offers were for less money than you expected, and you didn't want to take them because they were for less money. But you were able to use these offers to clean the scent of failure and suspicion <laughs> off of your body. Yeah, no, it, it took a long time to clean it off. It, I, I'm not sure it's still all the way off yet. But, um, yeah, no, it was um, – I mean the offers were – I mean I was really ecstatic to finally – get offers because I, I very much had this feeling like, wow, I don't know that I can actually get a job as an engineer right. regardless of my skill level. Um, and uh, these offers were just a huge sigh of relief in terms of actually knowing that, okay, I, I am employable. You know, Somebody thinks that I can actually do this job. Um, but all of these roles were explicitly junior and uh, the salaries were you know, basically on the absolute junior end of the scale. Um, now, I, at the time, I was like, okay, well, you know, that's kind of unfortunate. I would think that, you know, 
this is basically the same kind of offer that a student of mine a year before, or basically that if I had graduated App Academy a year before and just straight gotten a job at one of these companies, this is exactly how much they would have offered me, which tells me that to some degree, maybe my experience just means nothing. You know, maybe they don't think that the time that I've spent teaching, uh, you know, computer science and web development and actually doing software engineering for App Academy, it's all a wash, which maybe so, it was. You know, so it was I, either I that know. or the market was somewhat inefficient and you were going to have to play the game a little bit longer than you expected. Uh, yeah, that was that was certainly also a possibility that uh, turned I mean, out to be a reality. I, I, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't hoping for that much more. I was just hoping like, okay, I at least want to be making what I'm making now as director of product because mm. uh, it just feels so. I don't know, it feels like taking a step backwards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I was at some point resigned to maybe that's what I'm going to have to do. Um, but as much as possible, I was like, I just, I, I would, you know, it is to some degree a, you know, just a cognitive bias. But I want that not to be the case, you know. So were were these exploding offers? Uh, no. So actually, uh, well, so Gusto. Ah, yes. Okay. So actually, uh, thinking about the offers again now, um, yes, yeah, some of them were supposed to be exploding offers. And actually, so I'm you know I'm writing a, a blog post that probably at the time this uh, podcast goes out, it'll be already published. Um, and one of the things that I talk about in there is exploding offers, and. The number one thing about exploding offers, and this is exactly what I did when I got them, is you have to reject an exploding offer. Exploding offers just make it impossible for you to effectively negotiate uh, or actually you know, get your value uh, and make sure that you're making a good and reasoned decision about where you want to end up. And so one of the offers that I got was exploding. And basically meaning that it would come due in three days, and after three days, the offer would have expired, and I, I couldn't accept the job anymore. And basically, at the time of getting this offer, what I, what I, told, what I told them uh, is that, oh, yeah, so I, I see here on the offer letter, you know, it says that this is going to uh, expire in three days. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the pipeline with other companies, and I have other offers. There's no way that I can, there's no way that I can do this. Like, uh, this offer is basically – I basically can't accept this offer at all or consider it seriously – if you have a three-day timeline. And the moment that I said that, kind of with, with just essentially, um, basically like waving it off, like this, this offer is essentially worthless to me if you don't give me a, a reasonable timeline, um, such that like you might as well just trash it. Like there's no point in giving this to me. The moment that I said that, they were like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, just ignore that. You know, we'll change that. You take how much time you need. Right. Um, and I think, the, you know, the vast majority of people who, who take offers uh, or who, who receive offers that are exploding, they don't push back. Or if they push back, it's in the meekest of ways where it's like, oh, the, you know, that is, is there any way that I could get another day or another two days? Uh, and then they usually will say no because you have almost no leverage and they can tell that you are – you're not going to push back that hard. So let's um, let's take a step back here because I think yeah. what's imp- what's important to note here is that many times when people are entering uh, the job hunt, it is in an attitude of desperation, and that is how recruiters are able to exploit people with things like exploding offers. Like an exploding offer is actually an extremely effective tactic for recruiters mm-hmm. in most situations because the employee is typically somewhat desperate, really wants to get out of the job or just got fired or the job is a, is about to end for some reason they, and they don't want to have a gap on their resume where they can't get a job. Um, but you were able to sort of eschew that desperation um, I guess, was that just because you were confident or was it because your downside was kind of capped because you already had a job where, you know, you weren't really going to get fired from? 
Well, so I mean, those things are certainly true. That uh, you know, I, I, one, I had a job. Two, I had at least one other offer in hand at the time that I, or I knew that I was getting at least one other offer by the time I, I got this uh, um, got this offer letter. But I think you know, I mean, this is easy to say, but maybe it's even easier to say because you know, you and I were both poker players at one point. That you know, I I'm fairly certain that even if I only had one offer, I would still react the same way to an exploding offer um, because my goal was very much you know my goal when I when I enter into the job market is I want to get the best job that is the best fit for me and is what I want and when I, you know when I received a, when I receive a job offer from from a company like I can very immediately see oh there are a lot of great things about this company otherwise I wouldn't be interviewing there in the first place um, but I can also tell probably that it's not uh, or that it's very possible that there's another company that is a better fit for me. And a job is a huge, huge commitment. It is a huge opportunity cost. Uh, and, you know, the not having, not like just having a job itself as opposed to having a potentially better one is a huge opportunity cost. But then there's also the opportunity cost of actually having a better monetary offer, right? So there's not just like, well, if I, if I accept this job at Yelp, there's definitely no way that I can work at Google and maybe it's much better to work at Google. Um, but of course, there's also like, well, if I accept this job right now, you know, then there's no way that I can make any more money than what Yelp is offering me, even from Yelp itself. So there are a lot of opportunity costs that come from just accepting an offer without negotiation. And a, an exploding offer is the best way for a company to impair your ability to negotiate. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say that even if I only had one offer and I wasn't really even sure that I'd have another one, um, because I knew one that I was applying to other companies and in the pipeline of other companies, um, I would say absolutely unequivocally, like, yeah, this is just a non-starter. This is just so, not going to work. So I want to I fast forward a little bit um, yeah. because you uh, – I want to get through the story so we can talk about the broader context. You interviewed at Google Next and mm-hmm. you ended up with an offer at Google, which yeah. you parlayed even further You because the, the stench of failure was off of you. The, <laughs> the recruiters knew that you were actually a qualified candidate, especially because you had the Google offer. So your yeah. confidence was teeming. The recruiters could sense it in your emails. You started – telling recruiters at these different places you were interviewing, hey, I've got a Google offer. And they were like, oh, my God. And they started bidding higher and higher. You know, you had Uber and Twitch and Stripe and Gusto, all these hot companies. Mm-hmm. And you were you started, you know, you're just your, – your eyes are on the ball. You know, you're seducing the recruiters. You've got, <laughs> uh, you know, algorithms and data structures and email diplomacy all just – seething out of your fingertips how were you playing the different offers off of each other because basically the 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 punchline of this story is that you were you 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 got a bunch of offers and you used them to bid uh against each other so give us a synopsis of how this process went okay yeah so actually i I kind of want to correct you uh, a little bit because you know so this is this is i think a common way that my story gets summarized is that i got a bunch of offers to start a bidding war, quote unquote, or get them to bid <laughs> against each other, um, which is which is not really true. I applied to these companies because one, I wanted like I liked all these companies and I wanted to work there, and two, I had no idea how many of the companies would actually give me an offer. Right, so I didn't I didn't go into a job search thinking I'm going to get eight offers so that I can start a bidding war among companies. Uh, I don't think I, first of all I don't think that's a really good idea. That's a huge waste of time <laughs> because. If you want, like, if you know you're going to get Google, then there's no point in getting, and you and you know that you want to work at Google, then there's no point in getting a bunch of offers from startups because Google doesn't really care that much about what a startup offers you. Um, if you like, if you want to work at Google, you should get offers from Google and its competitors, 
So like Google, Facebook, Amazon, whatever. Those are the people who Google is going to get into a bidding war with, not startups. Uh, if you get a job, at, you know, it's kind of same thing, right? You want to you want to be competing in the right category. So I did not apply to a bunch of companies so that I could start a bidding war. Um, and every single company that I applied to, I actually liked and wanted to work at. Uh, and I think it's a really bad idea to sort of, you know, a priori to apply to a company just to quote unquote get into a bidding war. Uh, because one, you probably won't be able to convey very effectively that you want to work there. Um, and the company just probably will not want to really work with you if you aren't actually genuinely enthusiastic about the company or what they do. So that's one thing. It's, it's actually pretty hard to fake. Uh, and so the other, the other thing that I want to say, though, is that like the idea of a bidding war, again, it, it's, it's, it sounds very, very intentional and very dramatic, right? Like it sounds like you're in control. Uh, I was never that much in control. I mean, I tried to be in as much control as I could be, but I was very much, you know, at the whim of different companies and their timelines and, you know, stuff like that. So I was negotiating once I had offers and deciding where I wanted to end up. Uh, but I did not intentionally use companies just to like raise their offers in the hope that maybe they would raise someone else's offers. I think that's generally a bad idea. So at so, each at each decision point, when you're thinking about an email to send to a recruiter. Were you keeping in mind the best case scenario and the worst case scenario? How are you doing the calculus and of the expected value of these different outcomes? Yeah. So, you know, so when I'm talking to a company, one thing that I want to know is how good of an offer can you give me, right? I want to know that because I have to know in some part of my mind, there is some offer you could give me that would be so good that I would sign with you instead of with you know, Google or Uber or whatever, right? Um, if you are talking to a company and you cannot think of that number or you cannot think of a potential configuration of offers such that this would be the best one, uh, then you shouldn't even be talking to that company. Like, you, you, should just, you should just ignore them. And that is what I did, actually, with a, with a number of companies. So I mentioned that I didn't negotiate with every single company because there were some companies that I knew, like, there is actually probably not a realistic offer you could give me that I would want to work for you over one of these other companies. Uh, and so I didn't waste their time. Because I, you know, I just think that that's a thing you should do is not waste other people's time uh, or their resources because it is actually expensive for them to, to play, do this dance with you. Um, and so with companies that were companies that I was willing to consider, right, um, with them, I tried to see what is the best offer that you can give me. And like when I was talking with Uber, when I was talking with Twitch, when I was talking with uh, Yelp, I always had in mind there is an offer you can give me that will make me want to work for you. Um, and I think if you're, if you're not going into it with that in mind, one, I think the recruiter will sense it. Like, again, most people are not very good at subterfuge. Like, it's not that easy to lie continually to someone and not seem like you're lying. And recruiters are like professionals. They do this for a living. They are very good at telling when somebody is just kind of negotiating in a, a flat sort of, you know, just pure uh, utilitarian way. And when somebody's actually trying to find a deal that's going to be attractive to them. Hmm. Um, so, so not not to uh, take poker analogies too far because I know we're not really talking about poker here. But, sure. um, you know, it's interesting because in poker, you can see your opponent's stack. So you know the maximum that you can win. In, in mm-hmm. This is particularly relevant to no limit, pot limit poker. But when you're negotiating with Uber and Google, their stack is essentially infinite. So... So are you so are you basically looking for is is it are you more looking for a uh, is it is it um, 
is it binary? Like basically, is it is it like does the offer make me feel really, really, really excited to work here? Yes or no? That's mm-hmm. what I'm looking for. Is that how you look at it? Or uh, I mean, one thing, yeah, yeah, it's a good, good, good question. So one thing to be mindful of is that you know there's a like you have a certain value in in the market in some abstract sense, right? It, it's really impossible to quantify like what that means. Like, what is my value as a software engineer or as any as any particular uh, employee? Um, you you can't really answer that question. The only thing that you can do is see what am I worth to various companies, right? And there might be a company out there to which, you know, my particular subset or intersection of experiences is actually worth way, way more than it would be to this other software company. Um, and, you know, one, you know, one can imagine that maybe if I applied to an ed tech company, they'd be like, oh, wow, your experience at a boot camp is like so valuable to us that we're going to pay you way more than what Google will be willing to pay you because you're so much more valuable to us, right? Um, so that's certainly possible. And so your, your goal, I mean, the thing is like you can't really – go into a negotiation thinking, okay, I want to know exactly how much money you have and I want to try to call it, you know? Like that's, first of all, that's not really the way that a company like Google or, you know, any large company operates because they are really, you know, uh, like there's no possible universe in which Google will give you a billion dollar offer even though they have a billion dollars in their coffers. Um, but there, there is like, you know, in some abstract sense, there is an upper bound on what they're willing to pay people. Google has that for sure. Some startups are more flexible, but there is also somewhere an upper bound, right? Um, your goal should be not necessarily to hit that upper bound, but to get as close to it as possible by communicating your value as well to them as possible, uh, as well as you can, right? Um, and so, you know, so I think I think one example of this is that when you know when I got initially the offer from Yelp, uh, the offer that I was given was for an explicitly junior position. It was essentially like a new grad, someone who was fresh out of college. Um, which, you know, some people might think that's, well, that's really great. Like you don't have a CS degree, so that, that's a great uh, position to be in. Um, but then, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, about a week later, without any prompting on my part, um, they decided to level me up. And so they told me, actually, actually, no, we're not going to bring you in as a new grad. We kind of went on autopilot there. Uh, we are actually going to bring you in at sort of, you know, level one or I don't know, whatever, whatever the level is for, for Yelp that has like, you know, years of experience. Um, so they were bringing me in as though I'd worked somewhere as a software engineer for a year. And part of this, I think, was through my conversations with them is communicating that, you know, uh, I think that I can provide more value than just somebody who's, who's a new grad. And by seeing this, they were like, oh, actually, yeah, we, we agree. And because of that, we're willing to offer you more because we think you offer that, that extra, you know, uh, iota of value. So that I think is like the fundamental thing. So there are two fundamental things that you can do. One is that you can convince them that you're more valuable. That will make them want to increase their offer. Um, the second thing that you can do is you can convince them that somebody else uh, thinks that you're more valuable. Mm-hmm. Right? So now that somebody else has to be in the right reference class. So it has to be, you know, for, for example, for Google, it has to be another Google-type company that thinks they're really valuable. Right. If it's not a very Google type company, like if, you know, I don't know, Goldman Sachs wants to pay you a crap load of money, Google's like, well, great for you, but that doesn't really give us any signals that we care about. Right. But if Facebook wants to give you a boatload of money and Google doesn't, Google might be like, oh, okay, well, that to me is a sign that maybe we got something wrong. Right. And we are going to basically assume that Facebook is right and we're going to offer you a comparable amount of money, Mm. if not more, to get you over Facebook. Um, So that's like the second sort of lever that you can pull to try to make your offer stronger. Hmm. 
So eventually you got an Airbnb interview and that went well. You got Mm -hmm. a $220,000 offer from Airbnb. How did you wield that offer to the Google recruiters? Like what was the method of diplomacy you used to essentially say, hey, I've got this higher offer from Airbnb, like I don't know. Tell, tell me about the process from that point on. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot to tell. Uh, basically, <laughs> you know, at that point, I I had I had turned down all the other offers other than Google and Airbnb, and okay. uh, I was I was really strongly leaning towards Google until Airbnb gave me their offer, and uh, and I and I chatted with some of the folks, some of the hiring managers at Airbnb, who really really turned me on to the company, and you know, at that point, I was in final conversation with my Google recruiter. I had told her. Um, pretty much all the other offers that I'd gotten. So one of the things about Google, so Google is kind of its own beast. And I think pretty much any any company that's Google-esque, so you know Facebook, Amazon, any of those tech giants, they kind of operate in the same way, where your negotiation ability is really constrained by your other offers. There's not a lot that you can really do to convince them that they should pay you more other than, one, having a really convincing alternative, uh, especially from a comparable company. So, like, you cannot talk your way into a better Google offer. Like, there's, you, can't, you just cannot. Because they just have, like, a really... Like, a Google recruiter has a really tight playbook, and they are not actually allowed to increase your offer given certain constraints. Um, so there, there's sort of only, only so many moves that are available to you in negotiating with with, with Google, um, and, I, and I suspect that a lot of you know Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple companies are, are pretty similar. Um, so the only things you can really do is one, show them a better offer, or two, have some kind of really convincing reason that's easy for them to dip into their pockets for. So uh, an example of that is like a relocation thing, right? Like I need to relocate. Can you give me X amount of money as a relocation bonus, or um, you know? I have such and such stocks that are going to um, uh, that are going to vest. You know, can you sort of give me such amount of money that basically makes it so it's sort of a wash, and I don't have to stay here for an extra period of time? So those are the sorts of arguments that Google will listen to. Uh, and I, I remember actually learning about this because I read a bunch of blog posts that were written by a Google recruiter who literally just said, "These are the things we are allowed to do. We cannot do anything else." Whereas recruiters at other companies, especially startups, uh, younger companies, they have a lot more leeway, and there are a lot other different kinds of moves you can make. Uh, but with Google, it's basically and their stock very has more variability, so it's more yeah. interesting conversation there too. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, but pretty much at Google, like it's very, very uh, your, your moves are very constrained, and so the only the only real things you can do after a certain point of negotiation is just basically be like, "This is my other offer. Here's what I'm willing to do." You know, if you if you give me this amount of money, then you know I I will be strongly uh, inclined towards signing. Okay, so you told them your offer, they bumped it back up. Uh, what? Yeah. So I don't remember what they bumped it up to, but um, what? So after Google bumped it up from Airbnb, after seeing your two hundred twenty k offer from Airbnb, yeah. What what were you feeling at that point? What what was your strategy at then? Uh, well, so I mean, at that point, uh, it was mostly panic because I was, it was like down to the very last day. Uh, I had to make my decision. I think I got, I got the call from Google Friday morning because uh, they've been telling me since Wednesday, I think, that they were going to take my offer back to the comp team uh, and just kind of rejigger it. Um, I think uh, the, the package was originally 184. This is all in. This is not salary. Um, the package was originally 184, and they had told me that they were going to be able to beat 200K, which was what some of my other offers were, were coming into in, in total compensation. And 
the Friday morning, and I told everybody that Friday was the day I was going to make my decision. Uh, Friday morning, Google Recruiter called me, told me that they had moved the offer to, I think, 212. Um, and that that was essentially like the final iteration of the offer. So I was like, all right, cool. Thanks for letting me know. I will let you know my decision by the end of the day. Um, and, you know, I'd spoken with a bunch of my friends. I'd really deliberated over this, barely had gotten any sleep. And I had just kind of finally gotten to a place where I was like, I think I have to go with Airbnb. It just seems like the right place. I'm really excited about the company. I really like the people, really like the work. I think I got to go with Airbnb. Now, 220K was Airbnb's original offer. And uh, I kind of, you know, I say in the blog post, if there's one thing that my job search has taught me is that there's always more money on the table. And, you know, I, the, the, the one thing though that struck me was that Airbnb was my best offer by a significant margin if you just think, you know, all in compensation, right? Uh, they had kind of totally unprompted offered me this really big offer with a significant margin between what they knew my second best offer was. Um, and so... But I was like, I, but I still should negotiate. There's clearly still money on the table because they offered me this with, with you know minimal prompting. So so let's just let's just be clear here. So at this point, Google Google's offer was two twelve all in, yeah. and Airbnb's was two twenty. Yeah, and so, you decided you want, you were going to negotiate for even more with Airbnb. Yeah, because the thing is that I knew, and this is kind of one of the principles that I talk about in my blog posts, is that the thing that you have to take advantage of as a candidate is that a company cannot read your mind. Like they just, they just can't, you know, that it, that's kind of the way in which it's like a poker game is that they, you know, it's sort of so, like, so I remember you writing about this in poker because there was a particular opponent. I think it was Strati or somebody where you, you just, you had this feeling playing against him that you're like, oh, this guy's reading my mind, but you have to rid yourself of that feeling. And you have to actually have to do that in all contexts of life, whether you're yeah. dating or dealing with a manager or dealing with an investor or dealing with somebody at the supermarket. Nobody right. can read your mind. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so you know, the number one thing that you have to remember is that you know you might be somebody who's like, I would accept 220K in a heartbeat. And that's by far, I consider it to be by far my best offer, right? But Airbnb doesn't know that. Airbnb, like to Airbnb's eyes, I could well be somebody who gets 220K offer from Airbnb and just thinks, well, but Google's Google. Or thinks, well, but Google's offer is, is more cash heavy or it's, you know, it's more guaranteed because they're, they, you know, they're a public company. And so I'm just offering Google as – I'm just valuing Google as being worth way more, right? Airbnb doesn't know how I value these things. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't tell it how I value these things, then it kind of has to act as though I could be any of those sorts of people. Uh, and that's sort of, again, like my leverage to actually negotiate in this final moment. Why would Airbnb offer me anything more? Because they don't actually know what I value and how I value it. So what I, what, Well, this know, is the, the converse of the exploding offer because the exploding offer obviously makes no sense. But right. to, a, to a dismayed interview candidate, it, it seems like a very real reality. And you can think of all kinds of conceivable reasons why an exploding offer would exist. But in fact, it makes no sense. What do you mean by it makes no sense? Well, I mean, the idea of an exploding offer is like, oh, yeah, we're going to take this offer off the table uh, because we're not going to, you know, we might not need an engineer at that point. Uh, Maybe we we want to offer you less. Like the the idea that your offer would somehow disappear uh, or I think the, the, the idea that the offer would disappear, what it represents is the idea that you working at this company would disappear. And that is so implausible and ridiculous that. Uh, it doesn't really make any sense, but but nonetheless, uh, you are unable to read the mind of the recruiter, so therefore you can't really 
do anything but assume that they're not bluffing. And right. and 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 as ridiculous as it sounds, that's how it works. And conversely, this is how it works with Air, the Airbnb versus Google situation, where it, you know it doesn't really make sense for you to be saying like, "Oh, Airbnb, you should offer me even more money." But since they can't read your mind, they have to assume that you are in a mindset where it does make sense. Right. I mean, so actually, one thing that I do want to one thing I want to interject though in, in what you said is that you know, so an exploding offer makes sense from a sort of game theory perspective, right? It makes sense in, in for a company because if they uh, if they always have exploding offers, then they always have this negotiating leverage, right? And so the thing that you're trying to read your, your, the company's mind on, quote unquote, is, you know, how committed are you to this negotiating tactic of always having exploding offers, right? And the, the thing that, I, that I'd want to say is that what it means when I say that, you know, you should treat a negotiating, sorry, a exploding offer like bullshit is not that you should just be like, oh, well, you know, okay, cool. It's a three-day expiring offer. I'm just going to wait five days because I know that they're not going to pull the trigger, right? Don't do that. That is a, <laughs> that's a bad idea because for a company to actually even offer and have an exploding offer, they have to, from a game theoretic perspective, they have to actually honor it, right? Otherwise, everyone would just know that exploding offers literally didn't mean anything. You have to challenge the exploding offer itself, uh, and so I, I just I just hope that no one like hears this podcast and then is like, oh, great, got an exploding <laughs> offer. I'm just going to ignore it. And because, you know, there's no way they'll enforce it. Uh, and then they lose their offer and then get mad at me uh, that, you know, I hopefully am very clear on how you should approach an exploding offer. Not that you should just ignore it and pretend that they're not going to do anything. Um, so, yeah. So uh, so I basically I get on the phone with Airbnb and I tell them, hey, this is what Google offered me. Um, w- one thing I also should probably as a, add as a caveat. Uh, don't lie. Do not lie. To companies, uh, it's it, I, I can understand the temptation to do not do it. There's really no need to, and it will come back and bite you in the ass because the valley is a really small place, and a lot of these recruiters talk to each other and know each other. And uh, I've heard this more than once from various recruiters that they have caught candidates lying, and like about offers from other companies and just blacklisted them from the industry. Right. Like so, so you you don't want to say here, hey, by the way, Facebook called me and offered me 300k. Yeah, exactly. Don't like don't do that. Be honest. Um, now you don't have to tell them information, but you cannot tell them false information, right? That and it's a very important distinction there. Um, so anyway, so I, I you know I, I call up Airbnb, I tell them this is the final offer that Google's given me, um, and what I tell them is that well, you know, Google's offer is very cash heavy and that's very attractive to me, and you know, Airbnb comes with a lot of risk, um, you know. So I really, you know, I'd, I'd really like to work for Airbnb, but like in order for this offer to make sense, you know, can you guys do? Uh, basically, the stock has to be like a stronger component. Can you bump the stock to make the offer 250k a year? Is basically the way that I present it. And my recruiter tells me, you know, I'm, I'm gonna take a look. I'm gonna see if I can do this. I'll give you a call in the middle of the day. Uh, I sweat bullets for the rest of the day, uh, and I'm just like basically having a fever dream. And uh, finally, they call me. They tell me they can do 250k, and I'm like, well, shit. I guess I'm signing. And that uh, is how I ended up now at Airbnb. Is there a so let's let's take this to like the logical extreme because so I think that's a great conclusion. I'm very happy for you. It's very interesting. But just for the for the sake of the absurd, what would have happened if you would have gone further and said, mm, "I'm going to take this back to Google and say to Google, hey, I got 250k.' Like, 
Did you did you just have a feel for the situation that you had kind of reached the limit of playing these two sides off of each other? Sure. Well, two things I think. One is that you know one of your strongest plays as a negotiator is to actually promise that you will sign, right? But it's sort of like your it's like your trump card. It's like your final move that you can mm. make when you tell a company, "I will sign if X." They have much more incentive to produce X than if you say it would be more attractive to me if you got the offer to X, right? Right. Uh, and so, like, especially on the on the final day when there's not that much move room for go between, and also the fact that like Google, Google takes much longer to actually approve compensation changes, right? And so it's actually quite plausible that if I wanted Google to get another iteration in, they just wouldn't have time before my deadline. Um, so. But I think really a lot of it comes down to the power of the final, the final move, right? The final, you know, the going all in essentially. Mm. Um, when you do that, you give yourself a lot more power to have the company meet you and be confident that you're going to do what you say and actually they're going to they're going to win you, right? This is the last thing they have to do. So recruiters will often tell you like, oh, okay, well, you want X, Y, Z. Well, you know, it's really hard for me to get X, Y, Z. I have to go and talk to my manager. I have to go to the board. I, you know, whatever. They'd, they'll tell you all the horrible antics they have to engage in. Or it's like, yeah, you know, I can only do this certain amount of times a month. So, like, I am expending resources for myself that are very limited. So, if you don't sign the offer, then I'm going to be very sad and you're going to hurt me, right? It's essentially, you know, they won't say exactly that, but that's sort of the subtext that a recruiter mm-hmm. will tell you. Um, and they're right. Like, they're not lying to you. But they are telling you this because they want this to influence you and make you feel bad. Uh, and they ideally want you to not negotiate without putting your actual money down, hmm. you know, without saying that I'm going to buy. So when I think of a company like Airbnb, I think of a company that wants to recruit mission-driven employees. And I think of a company that would say to their recruiters, if if the person is playing hardball for the salary – just forget them because we only want people who are true Airbnb uh, supporters. They would like nothing more than to work at Airbnb. Uh, They're mission-driven employees. Um, d- did that ever cross your mind as like a, a source of risk? Or, or do you think that's – is that just like a, a weird narrative that's not actually true? No, no, no. So actually it's it's interesting question because I think actually – there's there there are two ways to put this. One is that somebody who is who is negotiating and trying to get the best offer, no company is going to be upset with you for doing that. No company at all. Even like startups would be understanding of this. But what all companies will be averse to is somebody who is money driven. And and I think there's a very important distinction there, right? Wanting to have the best offer or wanting to like have the best fit for yourself has a number of different dimensions, right? Part of it is is monetary compensation. Part of it is fit. Part of it is what you'll be working on. Uh, part of it is you know who the team will be. Um, money is money is a part of that. And if the way you're presenting, the way you're making your decision to the company is purely, I just want to get the most money that I can from whatever company, all companies will get turned off by that. Um, but if you say, you know, this offer is compelling to me. I like the company. I like this thing. The money is, you know, I, I, I'd like to see you guys do better on, on the monetary part. Um, and especially if you provide reasons why, right? If you just say, and this is kind of a dumb thing about negotiation or maybe just social protocol in general, but if you just cite a reason, right? Instead of just saying, I would like more money, if you just cite a reason, like any reason, it doesn't even matter how ridiculous the reason is. If you just say a reason, people will be like, oh, yeah, okay, oh, yeah, that's very reasonable, right? So if you just say, like, I want to buy a house, 
in the next few years. Or if you say, I'm going to get married soon and I need to save up money. Or if you say, I, you know, I want to pay off my student loans. Or you say, I, you know, I, I just really want to save money. Just like the most, of course you do, right? Like it's, it's almost meaningless to even say that. But if you just cite a reason, suddenly people are like, oh, they're not just money driven. They're not just horrible people. They, they have a really good reason. Oh, I want you to save money. So I'm going to try to see if I can improve your cash offer. Um, and so I don't know. This is a weird little brain hack that I think just somehow works is that if you just cite a reason, even if it's stupid, uh, people will just be more accepting of your desire for anything. Whether it be you know wanting to take time off, whether it be uh, you know more money, more stock, whatever it is, if you cite, can cite a reason, just the act of reason giving makes people more willing to say, yeah, sure, we'll you know we'll we'll try to accommodate that. So we still got a lot to talk about. You got thirty more minutes. I, yeah, I can do however long you got. Okay. All right. Great. So let's talk about the broader picture. And you wrote a blog post about this that will be out by the time this episode goes out. Mm-hmm. What are the lessons of negotiate? Or let's let's talk more broadly. What should an engineer know about negotiation? Ah, oh, man, so much. There's a, there's definitely a lot to know. Um, I mean, the the two most common truisms that I think like you read everywhere on the internet when you read anything about negotiation, right? The two things everyone tells you is always negotiate and never say the first number. This is pretty much what anyone, if anyone knows anything about negotiation, these are the two things they know and they pretty much know nothing else. Um, So I think the second one is not always true, whether, you know, whether you should never say the first number. I think yeah, I was going to say, sometimes you want to anchor. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like anchoring can be an effective strategy. Um, and there's, there are some times when like not saying the first number is just such a ridiculous thing to keep abiding by that you will just be difficult and cumbersome rather than actually being like an effective negotiator. Um, and the, the second thing is, you know, always negotiate. Yes, always negotiate, except when negotiating can potentially harm the relationship. Um, this usually doesn't apply to a job search, though. So you can pretty much ignore that for a job search. So the, so uh, I think the two most important things in a negotiation are that, that most people don't understand is that, one, negotiation is not zero-sum. Okay, negotiation is not a game of poker. Uh, so poker is a zero-sum game. Zero-sum meaning that you know if I win money, someone else by definition must lose that money that I won. Basically meaning that any interaction or any negotiation is just a transfer of resource from you to me or from me to you. Right? Someone loses, someone wins the exact same amount. Um, that is not the way negotiation works. Okay, and and the sooner you understand this, the the sooner you will be able to be an effective negotiator and find better solutions uh, when trying to strike a deal with a company. So just, just one quick example. A company is actually most of the time much more willing to give you a signing bonus than to give you salary. Okay, why is that? The reason why is that if a company gives you salary, then they have to pay you that amount of money every year. That amount of money goes into their burn rate, right? Especially if they're a startup, then it's something they have to, they have to account for. Uh, it also potentially allows other employees who are sort of, you know, at the same bracket as you um, to be able to, if they find out your salary, to say, oh, he's getting paid this much. Why am I not getting paid that amount, mm-hmm. right? So it sort of potentially uh, royals internal politics and then it's harder to, to pay other people the same amount, right? Um, and, and signing so, bonuses have clawback rights. Yeah, and signing bonuses have clawback rights, exactly. Um, and so that's, all those things make signing bonuses really attractive for a company. They don't have to pay them again. It's a one-time thing. Uh, and they... You know, they're just – they're easier in a lot of ways to, to dole out. Um, so but for you, 
you might not care. In fact, you might actually like having cash up front because you want to buy a car or something or I don't know, whatever, right? Um, and so this is a case where your values and the company's values differ. And so to be a good negotiator is to find a place where I really want something and it's really easy for you to give it to me, right? That is where a negotiation becomes non-zero sum. So instead of fighting really aggressively for salary because I want more money, what I can do instead is, is realize or even ask, hey, is it easier for you to give me salary or to give me uh, a signing bonus? And very often, a company will just tell you. They're, like, they're, not, they're not necessarily going to keep it secret. Uh, in fact, they usually won't because they also want to find a mutually beneficial deal. So your job as a negotiator is not to you – know, a lot of people think negotiation is about getting the best deal. And it's really not about that. Um, or at least it's not about that as your explicit goal. Your explicit goal should be – to find the best way to produce value for both you and the company simultaneously. Because if that's what you're shooting for, you're going to find much better uh, sort of local maxima than you would otherwise if the only thing you're thinking about is how can I get the most money. Okay, so we have been talking about the, the negotiation process of a salary, which is more of a one-time type of negotiation, and you don't really have to have an ongoing relationship with the recruiter after you join the company, mm-hmm. but there are other situations within engineering where if you make a negotiation, if you negotiate really hard or, or really, uh, I don't know how, whatever adjective you want to describe to use your crafty negotiation, um, like if you were to ne- apply those negotiation tactics to your one-on-ones with your manager, for example, you might toxify the relationship. I mean, you, you obviously, basically what I'm getting at is it is much different negotiation terms once you actually get to the company. So what are the types yeah. of negotiations that occur at a company once you are an employee? Right. So before, before I answer that, I want to throw out the caveat that this is definitely something that I, I'm not going to claim expertise on, but I'm certainly happy to weigh in on. Um, so, you know, I, so I mentioned that, you know, in a negotiation, oftentimes – so one thing I said is that you shouldn't always negotiate when the relationship matters, right? And when the relationship is potentially going to be affected by the negotiation. Certainly your relationship with your manager or with your, you know, whoever it is that you're negotiating with the company for your compensation is exactly an instance of that. It's sort of like an iterated game, an iterated negotiation where this is not the last negotiation you're going to do. You're going to be doing many negotiations. And the way this person thinks of you is going to affect your work and your ability to get stuff done at the company. Um, so what I would say is that Again, one of, the th- one of the most important things in negotiation is to be transparent about your values. Like that's really, really important and to give reasons. So when you're talking with your, uh, you know, uh, your, your hiring manager about this or your manager about this, um, you know, I would mention what I want, like what I care about. So maybe, maybe it's that I care about career progression more than I care about actual salary. Maybe I care about salary more than I care about career progression. Uh, it, maybe, I, maybe I want stock. Maybe I want cash. Be really clear about what you value and why. Um, second thing is I would give reasons why you want these things. Okay? So instead of just declaring, I want this, I want that, say, I want this because. And just, again, the act of reason giving one, you know, it kind of encourages more empathy and understanding of like what your motivation is. Um, but again, it just sort of like has this really dumb effect of justifying almost what you're saying and why you want it. Uh, just the act of providing a reason and not just declaring this is what you want will make someone feel more like I should try to satisfy this desire because clearly there's some goal that you have in mind. It's a, it's a goal-directed request. Um, so generally speaking, like 
one thing I would also do is try to set expectations up front, right? So when you come in and join an organization and you start having one-on-ones with your manager, um, I would talk to them. Like, you know, don't just like sit there and wait in sort of stealth mode until the moment you decide, okay, now it's time to ask for a raise or, okay, now it's time to ask for uh, a promotion, right? I think the thing to do is to say, okay, you know, so I am, I am, you know, motivated by career growth. I want to grow in this company and gain more responsibility, right? Um, so let's sit down and talk about what would that trajectory look like? How, you know, w- w- what is like an aggressive timeline for me to get a raise or an aggressive timeline? Like what, what sort of things would I have to do? What sort of milestones would I have to meet? You know, set that conversation and make it the backdrop for your interactions with your manager such that, you know, it's no surprise when three months in, you say, okay, you know, so do you think, you know, sort of bring that conversation up to light that we talked about and we've been continuously talking about, uh, about my career progression. It's been three months. I hit the milestone. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's fair to say that you should consider me for a raise, right? Uh, the more that's not a surprise and the more you set those expectations going forward about what this is going to look like uh, and kind of have, uh, you know, as much as possible, being able to say like, yeah, you remember we said this, we had this conversation and, you know, I feel like I've done these things. You know, let's do it. You, this is what you told me. Yeah. And uh, if 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 you continually have those those conversations with your manager, it's gonna be much more effective than just bringing it all up, uh, kind of in in one big surprising evening. What else do you talk about in this negotiation blog post? Um, so I, a large part of uh, basically like the the structure of it is kind of guiding somebody through the principles of negotiation, um, but kind of with the with the backdrop of. First, getting a job offer, trying to leverage that into other job offers, and then negotiating among among offers. Um, but a lot of it is kind of like on the theory of negotiation and also how to deal with a lot of the kind of like techniques or traps that uh, companies will throw at you to try to either hinder you from negotiating or, or you know, even uh, stop you from negotiating altogether. So uh, I can give you actually an example that I think was uh, very it was very interesting actually I, I kind of enjoyed it because, okay let's do it yeah totally so I was talking with the company uh, this was like about the middle of my negotiations where I was talking to you know I think I had like five offers at this point um, and so one company was talking to me and they told me um, yeah so I have so I you know I, I can give you such and such amount of money um, and I was telling them that I you know I, I wanted them to do better and that I had other offers that were stronger and that like in order for me to consider this offer um, they had to they had to do better on on some fronts. And so they were like, okay, you know what? I like you, believe in you, whatever, you know, he's trying to be very, very jovial and, and friendly. Um, and the, the recruiter said to me, okay, you know what? I, I can, I can do this for you. I can go out and I can probably get this offer, but I need to know from you that if I get this offer, you are not going to turn around and just go tell Google about this offer, right? That if I give you this offer, you are just going to consider it and take it on its own merits. You're not going to use this as leverage for negotiation. Now, this is the first time anyone ever asked me this, and so it kind of it kind of took me off guard. It's a right? nice tactic like, gets you to yeah, play no. the trump card. Absolutely, absolutely, right. And so basically, they're, they're, you know, this person was trying to say um, they were they were trying to they were trying to push me in a way that would get me to not negotiate, basically give up my power. And one of the things that I that I say in in my blog post about negotiation is that one of the principles about negotiation is you should always always keep the door open to further negotiation until you are ready to make a decision. Okay. Uh, within within reason. I mean, don't do crazy shit, but you know, like be be as mindful as possible that almost every company will be trying to close that door, and it's sort of your job to keep it propped open. Okay. So what this person was essentially asking me to do, this subtext here is, please stop negotiating. If you stop negotiating, I will go and get this better offer for you. 
And so I just challenged him and I said, okay, let me be clear on what you're saying here. Are you saying that you will not give me this offer if I tell anybody else that you've given me this offer? And so he says, well, no, no, that's not exactly what I'm saying uh, because, you know, legally I can't say that. Um, actually, what I'm saying is that if you, you know, if I go and, and get this offer for you, um, it will be a violation of my trust if you take this offer and go negotiate with Google with it. And so then I say, okay, let me understand what you're saying here. So you are saying that if you give me this offer and I then tell anybody else about it, then I'm in violation of your trust in giving me this offer in the first place. And he's like, okay, okay let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. Um, I am going to go out and get you this offer, but I am going to just assume that you are not the kind of guy who's going to take this offer and turn it around and negotiate and like bring this to Google. And I'm like, all right, yeah, if that's what you want to do, absolutely, totally understand. And then, of course, I, I you know, I, I told Google about this offer as I told other companies about each other's offers uh, because that's what <laughs> – that is your right as somebody in the market for a job to have an open and competitive market. Um, right. He, he was like the, the old Texas – gamblers who are like if you check raise me you can't check raise here we don't allow yeah. check raising yeah exactly if you exactly. check raise you're gonna get yourself shot right uh and i and what i said was like let me let me understand you are telling me that if you che- if i check raise you are going to shoot me you are going to kill me if i check raise you and he's like well no 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 that's not exactly what i'm saying like i'm you know i'm not going to commit myself to that statement um and that's essentially what happened is that you know i was like all right if you if you want to labor under that impression that's that's your you know that's your life you can do you can you can believe whatever you want i am not going to tell you because i'm not going to lie to you that's like my uh <laughs> principle when i negotiate i am not going to say i will not go and, and speak with google and in fact if he had played hardball with me i would have said cool then yeah don't don't go get that offer for me mm. i would have i would have gone you know walked all the way to the door and said yeah I mean, if that's if that's what it is, if this is the best offer you can do, uh, and you know, I'm not going to make you the promise that I will not tell anyone else about what you offer me. Mm. That's just I'm I'm not willing to do that. Okay. Um, and if it meant walking away, I would have walked away. Okay, I got some broader questions. Um, cool. Do you think that the tech industry is a cabal of companies that are keeping salaries artificially low? Uh, <laughs> that so I know they, they they've certainly done that in the past, right? And so there's you know this obviously big collusion case between uh, a lot of the tech giants about Google, yeah, Apple, salary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I think so now. I mean, I I don't know. Um, I mean, I would imagine there are probably some uh, kind of soft ways in which there, there is some sort of coordination going on. But I think also there there's so many players now in the market, and there's so many tech companies that it's just hard to actually collude that effectively right um there may be some quote-unquote collusion on the on sort of the upper bound um but because there's so many startups now competing for the same talent there's so many other companies that need tech workers um i think it's just, it's just hard to play the maybe, same maybe but the way that the i think still that the way that the equity is structured makes there be some fundamental frictions in the market even on the lower end where the people are actually getting hired what, what do you mean can you elaborate well, so you know, if if I'm a venture capitalist and I'm and I own X percent of a company, but that company has uh, X percent of cash, uh, you know, th- there's um, they ca- the company can't. Uh, there's still a, uh, a a ceiling on so so because the owners of the company, the way that they have bought in, the way that they're incentivized is to get massive leverage out of their investments. 
uh, the the tech employees still cannot capture a large percentage of value that they are generating. So, so the way I look at it is, you're an you're an employee at a tech company. Oftentimes, you're producing software that has a million dollars of value uh, in in annual returns, but you get paid a hundred thousand uh, dollars to to write that software. And so, I think of the margin between. That that nine hundred thousand dollar margin, I think of as this suspicious. Like, why isn't the engineer capturing more of that? And what I would say is that the the reason that the engineer doesn't capture more of that is because the way that incentives are fundamentally structured is such that the people who are investing in the company need to make these need to make these 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 big returns. And so so it's essentially like this this macro market structure that is pressuring uh, the salaries the the salaries lower. Um, and and kind of until that sort of starts to diminish, which it is with with different funding environments, more transparency in the funding market, more bootstrapping, uh, less need of funding. Uh, like I see all these factors that are eating away at this uh, this what I would call exploitation on the uh, on the potential for the, of the ten x engineer. Um, sure. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Is, does that does that sound like a does, well, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much I want to weigh in here because it's way outside my field of expertise, but <laughs> it does sound like what you're describing is much more a function of capitalism than of any particular, you know, cons- like any, any concerted collusion between companies or mm-hmm. among companies, rather. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, like this is true in, in most industries, right? This is not a, a unique feature of, of engineering, but it's also true that like engineers are not organized or like there's no, there's no union that can, that can uh, negotiate in unison. And so there, there are definitely a lot of coordination problems among tech workers. Um, but I, you know, I would be very skeptical of the claim that there's something special going on right now. Um, that's not just a feature of capitalism itself. Okay, but here is what is interesting and unique about it is the fact that you know in past in past situations like you're a, a you're a assembly line worker at a cannery in in the 1920s or 1930s or whatever. <laughs> sure, yeah. you, know, you, you can't go start your own cannery because the upfront costs are so high, but. Right. In engineering these days, the upfront costs have gotten so low that you, you know, if you want to go start a podcast or start a software company, you can go and do that. So the, so the, it's it's a little bit different. You know, you have alternatives. If you say I don't like this deal where I get paid a hundred thousand dollars to write software that generates a million dollars, if you don't like that deal, you can go do it elsewhere. But uh, I don't know. This is this is what I. You know, think is 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 interesting. Yeah, but because- I, I think I think you have to be careful though about what the actual alternative is for most engineers. Like the reality is that most engineers would be shitty founders. Like they, and most engineers would start a company that is not very likely to succeed. If you actually look, like if you look just at like the cream of the crop of founders, right? If you look only at let's say like YC founders, I think I think I remember reading that you know the average YC founder. Um, of course, like this is very, very top heavy, right? But the average YC founder makes about a million a year in expected value. Um, it, like just taking, you know, just throwing a dart on the board and finding a YC founder. That's that's pretty good. But obviously, you know, there are many, many companies that don't get into YC. And not only that, but there's much, much higher variance. And it's you know very very uh, you know it's kind of black swanish right where there most of the value is in a very very small percentage, and human beings hate that. 
Like human beings hate those kinds of probability distributions. And so I mean, venture capitalists like it because they can invest in 100 companies simultaneously. As a human being, you can only invest in one. And Well, but this comes beings, back to the whole you know, idea of you know, the Peter Thiel thing. Like if, you're, if you think you're in a lottery, then you've psyched yourself into behaving like you're in a lottery and it's going to make you lose like you're in a lottery. And if you decide that you're not in a lottery – then your mindset will be different and you will succeed like you're in a deterministic environment. I mean, to me, that is – that's just patently untrue. Like that, there's no way that that can be true, right? There, there, if you're claiming that there is no randomness or no noise in companies being founded and, and succeeding – I mean, look at repeat founders. Look at like founders who've, who founded really successful companies. I mean, you can, you can see a few of them who've, who've – you know, like I don't know, obviously Elon Musk and Peter Thiel are good examples – who founded subsequent companies and they were really successful – the vast majority of repeat founders aren't don't hit home runs their second go around, um, because I mean obviously there just aren't that many home run companies, uh, and there there are many companies in the past that have been home runs. Well, we so, also have an extremely low sample size for how how long a period of time it's been where y- you know you can feasibly start two companies. Sure, I mean that's true, but like there were there were many successful companies that have been founded in the last fifteen years that you know the founders left, sold within a few years, right, or you know four or five years, and founded subsequent ventures, and you know their rate of success is higher. It's kind of like in poker, like in tournaments, right? Um, in a, in a tournament in poker, even if the best player in the world enters into a poker tournament, his absolute chance of winning is very very low. It's, you know, uh, in, in any large tournament, it's less than 1%, even if he's by far the best player in that tournament. Now, that doesn't mean that a tournament is a lottery. It's sort of, I mean, the way I like to describe it, it's sort of like a lottery where you have five tickets, which is still plus EV. It's still, you know, good. But I think it would be an illusion to say that, like, well, it's not a lottery at all. It's actually totally deterministic. Um, it's clear that there's a lot of noise and randomness in founding a company, the same way that there is in a poker game. Um, there is a lot of skill involved, but that skill... Just you know, it, it it adds to your expected value, but it doesn't necessarily raise the chance of success. Period, um, or to to a significant margin. So what I would say is that you know one of the reasons why it is not necessarily unfair. I mean, I'm not saying it is fair, but it's not necessarily unfair that you know the expected value of for a you know a tech founder would be much higher than what they're getting paid at a company uh, to work as just as a software engineer. Is that you are paying for that risk aversion, right? You are paying for that guaranteed payout. And I know a lot of people in poker who, you know, get staked or basically like have somebody bankroll them precisely for the reason that they don't have to risk any of their own money. And they give up some of the expected value for that peace of mind and for that knowledge that like, yeah, I, I will definitely not, I will definitely win money because because of the structure of this thing. Uh, there's no chance that I waste a year of my life and, and a lot of stress. Um, because, you know, I have this guaranteed payout. And human beings, I think, are wired to want that. Right. The downside is capped. Um, yeah. And I think you know, what becomes interesting about this for me personally is that, like, um, I, I mean, oh, this, is, this is getting pretty off base. But, you know, it's, it's just – it seems like there's uh, the – you know what? We don't need to go down this this, this rabbit hole too much further. Um, <laughs> we've, right. we've been down it enough times. I, I want to talk about earning to give, which is uh, another uh, thing that you talk about a lot and you're heavily involved and you're interested in it and you mm-hmm. put your money where your mouth is literally. Why don't you explain what earning to give is and um, talk about how it impacts your salary? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I first became aware of Earning to Give, I think around 20, 2013, which is um, a little a couple of years after I quit poker. 
and um, or I think 2014 actually. And you know, I so I made a lot of money when I was a poker player, and then when I was uh, I think in 20, 2014, I gave away all the money that I'd made. And shortly after, I came across this idea of earning to give. And the idea of earning to give is if you want to help the world in the most uh, principle and effective way, meaning that what you want to do for the world is not just some kind of token feel-good uh, experience of like, yeah, I'm going to go volunteer on weekends or I'm going to go work at a soup kitchen and, and you know see the community and help out people who are less fortunate than myself. What, if, if you... If what you want is not just to feel good about what you're doing or to feel like you're a good person or even to just get sort of tokens of social status, but what you really are motivated by is actually reducing the suffering in the world as much as possible, meaning that like what I care about is not do I feel good, not do I look good, but can I actually put a dent in the suffering in the world, basically being scientific and more rational about how to actually make the world a better place. Um, if you are devoted to that project, then it sort of raises this thought experiment, which is which is like this. Um, essentially, let's say that I wanted to, you know, uh, I wanted to try to improve the world as much as possible. One thing I could do, and that occurs to a lot of people, is okay. Why don't I go out and you know volunteer in Africa, right? Just quit my job, go out there, and, and I don't know, join the Peace Corps or something. Well, it, but what if instead I went out and became a lawyer? And I did lawyer stuff. I, did, I wasn't like a human rights lawyer or anything extravagant. Uh, I was just like a big law, you know, working for you know, banks or whatever. Um, and the work that I did was totally amoral. It was just neutral, right? It didn't, it didn't have any particular effect either way. Uh, because, you know, if I didn't take this job, some other lawyer would take this job. So on average, I'm, I'm basically doing something that would be done anyway. Um, but I take the money that I'd be paid. Right, and if you're a lawyer at a, at a big law firm, you might make like 160k a year, and I take a large chunk of that money, and I donate it to the company or to the you know the nonprofit that would otherwise be sending someone instead of me to go and do that work, or you know hire someone locally to do that work that I would have otherwise done, and maybe to hire two people to do the work that I would otherwise done, and so you very quickly arrive at this notion that you know maybe in fact the way to be the most charitable, the way to do the most good in the world, is actually not by going out and being on the front lines yourself. But by taking advantage of the fact that in the first world, in the United States, um, there's so much economic inequality that – which is very strange. It's very strange that like somebody who you know, grows up and is just as intelligent, just as capable in, you know, uh, in Zimbabwe is able to make you know, thousands of dollars a year. And you as somebody who's like pretty good, pretty smart, you, know, you, you work kind of hard, uh, can make you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year very, very easily. Just because of where you're born, uh, this is very strange. And by taking advantage of this economic inequality, you can sort of use that as a lever to say, "Okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to pursue a career that makes a lot of money, purely with the intention of taking that money and donating it to highly effective charities that can do as much work as possible around the world, more than I could do myself if I went directly and, and worked on these things." And that's sort of the the argument for earning to give. So I read this argument, and I was convinced. I was like, this argument makes sense. I don't, you know, I, it just, it's convincing to me. And uh, so I decided that I was going to go out, you know, this is kind of after post-poker, um, that I was going to go out and try to find a higher earning career so that I could donate more money and earn to give. So I, uh, you know, one of the ways that I, you know, I was thinking about law, I was thinking about business, uh, and then finally I converged on software particularly so that eventually I could go out and found my own company. And I thought the best way to get there would be to start as a software engineer, learn how uh, you know, software products are built, because you know, it's no surprise to many people that engineers tend to make uh, some of the best founders. 
So that's what brought me out to Silicon Valley. Um, and so I've come out here with the very discreet intention that I want to try to earn a strong um, compensation package and donate as much as I can to charity. So right now I donate uh, 33% of everything that I make. So whether that be salary, whether it be stock, whatever it is, uh, one-third of everything pre-tax I donate to high-impact charities. And uh, my goal eventually is to donate 50% of everything I make, which is the maximum amount that the IRS allows you to deduct uh, from your from your actual income. Um, and one of the other goals that I have explicitly is to try to encourage other people to do the same. Um, so that's earning to give. So let's uh, – so I'm uh, in, in almost complete agreement with you here, but – you are a very smart guy, and many charities that you might give to are, on the whole, maybe less smart. So why would you give money to a charity rather than aggressively reinvesting in yourself and your career and your ability to start businesses and your ability to accrue interest, your ability to compound interest? Wouldn't the Hasib Personal Investment Fund compound interest at a higher rate that you could eventually deploy into some sort of technology company uh, where you could make uh, an even higher exponentially compounding uh, growth rate of money rather than leak along the way and mm. give away to charities? Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. And it's, it's one that I hear a lot from software people because I think it's kind of a common refrain that, that – you know, this this kind of attitude. It's a very convenient um, one too. It's a very it is a very convenient one, which which makes you have to be a little bit more skeptical than you'd otherwise be. But let's let's actually look at the argument. So essentially, what you're saying is that you know, it, first of all, let me let me tell you where I agree with you. I agree with you that uh, anybody who's earning to give, um, or generally anybody who has a career, should reinvest aggressively in themselves. Like if you're not doing that, you are making a fundamental mistake because most of the money you're going to make as a worker is in the future. It's not right now. Right. Uh, same is true for me as, as anybody, uh, unless you're like at the very tail end of your career, obviously. So uh, absolutely, like there are, there are ways in which I make sure to reinvest in myself and I don't skimp on those investments. So whether it be like you know, taking courses or uh, you know, spending time working on things that I think are going to make me a better, uh, better at what I do, I absolutely don't skimp on those things and I don't think that you should. That said, if you are a software worker or a tech worker, that usually doesn't impair your ability. You know, those expenses are relatively small relative to the, uh, the, the compensation that you're receiving for the most part, depending on where in the world you live. Um, so that, I, that I'd agree with. And that absolutely, if you're know, making very little money or you have student loans to pay off or whatever, do those first. I absolutely say you should do those first before you earn to give or rather donate that money to charity. Now, the second part of that argument, though, is like, okay, well, why don't you just like, you know, compound the interest? Uh, why don't you just like save the money and invest in yourself? Uh, or why don't you just save the money and like make smarter decisions than the dumb people who are running charities? So one, again, one place where I will concede is that most charities are not very effective or we don't actually know whether they are effective. So this is one of the big uh, tenets of, of effective altruism, it, which, is, which is the movement of which I'm, I'm now part, is um, to, to really, again, scientifically look at charities and using the scientific method, using things like randomized controlled trials and like, you know, good analyses of what impact are these uh, charities actually having and not just blindly assume that because the company or because the charity is doing a good thing that it's working. Or that the thing actually produces positive baseline results. Um, like you should be skeptical as a default 
as to whether charities actually do what they claim to be doing or that they're actually uh, putting the money to use in the most impactful way. So there's, there's this organization called GiveWell, which actually does this sort of analysis of charities, not just like, okay, how much money is going to fundraising, how much money is going to paying people, uh, but literally per dollar spent – how much good is done in the world, like how much, uh, you know, our diseases reduced, how much is malnutrition reduced, uh, how much are, are deaths reduced as a result of $1 spent on this intervention in some part of the world. So that's, that's the first step is that you can actually find uh, charities or you can have other very smart people find them for you that uh, are proven and, and have a very, very solid case for high, uh, high impact per dollar spent. Now, the second thing, though, is, well, okay, why don't I just, like, save up money and do smart things and make even more money and then donate it all when I'm, when I'm dead? So sort of, you know, uh, Andrew Carnegie style, right? So one – two reasons why I'm, I'm very skeptical of this. One is that the reality is that, one, you know, it, you will have much less influence over other people in your lifetime if that is what you do. And I think one of the most impactful things you can do as somebody earning to give, is not just give your own money, but convince somebody else to do the same, right? Like there's, there's much, it's much more scalable if in fact by, you know, being an example of somebody who's earning to give, you influence three people's earn to give. Suddenly you have multiplied your giving by four, right? There's, there's a huge, uh, uh, there's a huge network effects. Effect, right, huge network effects that you get uh, when you do this openly in the course of your life rather than just in one lump sum when you die. Um, and it also just is less impressive to people, right? It's actually not a big deal and it's not particularly hard, right? It's not a, a token of virtue if somebody gives all their money to charity instead of giving it to their families when they're dead, you know? This, this sort of thing happens all the time. No one notices. It's, it's not particularly affecting to people. But seeing people, and this is very much the experience that happened to me, you know, when I learned that there are people who are doing this, who are going out in the industry and giving half of what they make, you know, who, who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars and living in like, you know, very modest apartments, uh, working in finance or working in tech, uh, because this is why they came out here to do this. That's really compelling. That's really like, wow, that person is living in this really principled and awesome and, 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 you know, complete way. Hmm. And I want to emulate that, you know, so, I think that's more convincing to people. So, but I want to, I want to add one more thing. Um, the last thing that I want to say is that you always have to keep into account the probability that you will change your mind. Like you, you cannot be, you cannot just assume that you will do what you say because you said you'll do it. Like this is sort of the oldest fallacy in human history, right? Is because I said that I'm not going to eat donuts. I'm not going to eat a donut for the next week. Like, of course not. That's, that's a ridiculous statement. And so to say like, okay, well, I'll donate all the money when I'm dead or I'll donate all the money when I'm making a lot or when I'm older, um, chances are you won't because most people don't and most people are idealistic when they're young. And so the best way that you can ensure that you will actually do this, right, the best way to maximize your sort of expected amount of charity given is to actually do it now and create sort of a habit in a, in a, uh, a sense of self around this. Uh, that will much more guarantee that you will do it rather than just the very human instinct of trying to put it off because it's something that's undesirable now. It's probably going to be even more undesirable in the future. And I suppose what you're saying here also is just that by, you know, if, well, maybe you're not saying this, but you maybe can tell me if that's true. If you're, you know, if you were to save up money more aggressively rather than give it away, 
you probably it probably would not expedite you doing something groundbreaking like creating the iPhone and causing a step change improvement in humanity sure, by yeah. building a new technology and then by generating all this new capital off of that. Probably your closeness to that type of innovation is not bounded by having an extra two hundred grand in the bank. Well, so I, I I don't want to be dogmatic about it, right? So I would say, you know, if you're earning to give, you should definitely be saving money. Because it does, it, you know, it does, like again, it's sort of investing in yourself, right? You want to have enough of a cushion that, for example, if you leave your job, you are okay in finding a next job. You're not out on the street. That's going to really significantly impair you in your ability to like get shit done and actually build your career, which is an important element of earning to give, is to actually build a, a successful career. Um, but, the, but the second thing that I want to say is that I, I'm not, you know, in principle opposed to somebody spending money on themselves or, or saving money or, or uh, you know, anything along those lines or even investing in their own projects over giving to charity. You just have to be able to provide a principled argument and a convincing argument why this is higher ROI or why this is higher return uh, if, in fact, this is sort of part of the project of earning to give, which I don't think you should make everything about earning to give. You shouldn't paralyze yourself. I think it's best to sort of compartmentalize and say, okay, you know, this percentage of my income is for earning to give, the rest of it I'm just a normal person and I just spend on whatever frivolous things I want to because um, I think just as human beings, we function better that way. But, I, you know, again, like I'm not in principle opposed to the idea that like, okay, I want to, you know, I want to found a startup. Uh, I'm going to need some savings. So I'm going to, you know, give less for now. And I think that founding the startup is going to do more for the world. It's going to, it's going to, you know, have some direct positive effects in the world or it's going to allow me to have a lot more money and allow me to donate more of that. I say, yeah, that's a great argument. Do that. That, that's very convincing. But to say instead, like, okay, well, why don't I just invest it all in index funds and, or like go and put it on the stock market because I think I'm a great, great at picking stocks or whatever. Um, and it's going to you know, produce much better returns than I think giving it to charity now. I think that, again, is not a very principled argument. I, don't think, it's, I think it's very hard to make that case because you know, I, I've actually heard this before from people who push back against starting to give that, well, you know, why not give, you know, put the money into index funds and then – 40 years from now when it doubles, then give it to charity, right? Then that's more money you've given to charity. And if you, if you just look at the argument on one side, on the cash side, then it's like, yeah, that obviously is correct. Um, the, the problem with that, though, is that you're ignoring the ROI on giving to charity now, right? There's ROI on both sides. There's, there's you know, continuing returns on both sides. If you, for example, give to a company like AMF, AMF uh, Against Malaria Foundation is like the top-ranked charity in the world by, by GiveWell. And basically what they do is they provide anti-malarial bed nets for $3 a piece uh, that basically reduce the rate of malaria and thereby the rates of death, illness, all these things in uh, many parts of Africa and, and Asia. So super great intervention, super cheap, you know, alleviates a lot of suffering in the world. Um, you might think, well, well, I can buy twice as many bed nets if I wait 40 years. Well, the problem, of course, is like, what about the return on value and the return on like the less suffering that happens from the people who now have less malaria and yeah, don't die? The, the compounding of human exactly, potential. Exactly. Of like economic progress, of infrastructure that, that can be built now because there's less malaria. Like all that stuff is on the other side of the equation. Yeah. You cannot just look at one side. Um, and, you know, chances are, and I would, I would a very strong argument that one of it would be very surprising if the stock market had a better rate of return on reducing suffering than the best charities in the world right now. That would be very strange. And if it if it were true, then everybody should be putting money in the stock market, right? Nobody should be donating to the charities right now because, like, the stock market would just be this crazy money making machine that everybody would be putting money into. Um, if you believe that argument, then you should say that everyone should do that. Uh, but it just it doesn't it, like it's clearly not correct. If it makes sense to do that work now, 
then we should be like if, if you know if in a perfect world we were putting money into that now you know if if we were not hitting the point of diminishing marginal returns then we should keep putting money there and that is the best place to to put money um so yeah i, I don't think that argument holds under under scrutiny all right. Well, Hasib, this has been an awesome conversation. We've gone uh, much longer than typical episodes. <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. No, no. No. Uh, my pleasure to talk to you. Um, so I really appreciate you coming back on the show. I'm really happy that your uh, career has successfully migrated to tech. And uh, oh, thank you. I will continue to be your weird cheerleader, as you have called me in the past. Um I- I, I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Important, okay, cool. Important role in my life. <laughs> yes. Okay, cool. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Of course.